1: Welcome to The Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of The Darkened Hour, and I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. With me today is a very special guest. John Kiriakou is a former CIA case officer, former senior investigator for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and former counterterrorism consultant for ABC News. He was responsible for the capture in Pakistan in 2002 of Abu Zubaydah, then believed to be the third-ranking official in Al-Qaeda. In 2007, Kiriaka blew the whistle on CIA's torture program, telling ABC News that the CIA tortured prisoners that torture was official U.S. government policy, that the policy had been approved by then-President George W. Bush. It became the sixth whistleblower indicted by the Obama administration under the Espionage Act. In 2012, Kiriaka was honored with the Joe A. Calloway Award for Civic Courage, an award given to individuals who advance truth and justice despite the, possible, the personal risk it creates. He was later named Peacemaker of the Year by the Peace and Justice Center of Sonoma County, California. He won the Penn Center's USA's prestigious First Amendment Award in 2015 and is the author of The Reluctant Spy, My Secret Life in the CIA's War on Terror, while also authoring, authoring other books such as The Convenient Terrorist, Surveillance and Surveillance Detection, A CIA's Insider Guide, and Doing Time Like a Spy, How the CIA Taught Me How to Survive and Thrive in Prison. John Kiriakou, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Happy to do it.
1: You know, you you mentioned in your book that you were actually recruited into the CIA by a graduate school professor at George Washington University, who had been himself a former CIA official. Tell Mm -hmm. us us more about this encounter.
0: Yeah, I was in graduate school at George Washington University. This is uh, uh, 1988, and uh, I was taking a class called The Psychology of Leadership. It was taught by an eminent psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Gerald Post. He was very unusual in that he had a PhD in political science, a PhD in psychology, and an MD, and um, and was a practicing psychiatrist. So he was he was teaching this course, absolutely fascinating course, on the psychology that foreign leaders exercise to implement their policies their foreign policies and to get what they want Uh, looking at for example why the yalta conference at near the end of world war ii was in yalta why wasn't it you know in washington or london or tehran or whatever Um, and it's because that stalin knew that roosevelt was sick and so roosevelt had to go all the way around the war through africa and then iran to go up to Yalta. And by the time he got there, he was exhausted and he wanted to go to sleep. And Stalin insisted that the talks begin immediately. And just to be able to go to bed, Roosevelt gave up Poland. And so, you know, things like that, we don't normally talk about the role of psychology in the execution of foreign policy. So I did really well in this class and, he gave us an assignment one day where he wanted us to shadow our bosses for a week and then write a psychological profile of our bosses. I was working at a labor union at the time, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union at their international headquarters here in Washington. And um, I was a little afraid of my boss. He was he was a big, mean, uh, union organizer he had had his back broken during a, a riot by scabs and it he was just a mean old school badass and so I'm spending the week with him and halfway through the week we get into an argument and I called him a racist which he was he got so angry he balled up his fists and I, I put up my hands to protect myself, thinking, I went too far this time. Here it comes. And he looks at me and he says, my penis is bigger than yours. And I said, what? And he said it again. And I said, you know what? You're nuts. And I quit. And I walked out. I quit. So I, I went back to my dorm and I wrote this paper. I told the story in the paper. And I said, he's a sociopath with psychopathic and possibly violent tendencies. And then using the texts, I gave examples of of these uh, tendencies. A week later, I get the paper back, I got an A. And in the margin, Dr. Post wrote, please see me after class. So class finished and and I went to see him. I said, Dr. Post, you you wanted to see me. He says, come to my office. So I go down to his office, a couple of floors below the uh, classroom. And he said, Look, I'm not really a professor here. I'm a CIA officer undercover as a professor here. And I'm looking for people who might fit into the CIA's culture. Mm -hmm. I think you would be a good CIA officer. Are you interested in joining the CIA? And the truth is, I had given it, you know, five minutes of thought, just like the Foreign Service or maybe Capitol Hill. Um, but I was getting married in like six weeks and I didn't have, I had a job lined up, but it wasn't a career lined up. Mm-hmm. So I said, sure, I'd be interested in joining the CIA. And he started the process for me. Um, I I did all the the testing and the background investigations and all that. It took quite a while, it took about uh, 16 months. but um, But I found myself in the CIA.
1: And this is, a, by the way, just to follow up on that, Gerald Post also did a biography on bin Laden and al-Qaeda.
0: Is it the same Gerald Post, by the way? Same Gerald Post, yeah, same Gerald he Post. was extensively published. He he was, I mean, I used to see him on TV all through, all through my CIA career hmm. and after my CIA career. I'd see him on TV all the time, Discovery Channel, National Geographic, CNN. He must have written two dozen books. Hmm. And they were on, you know, Bin Laden and Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi and all these these foreign leaders with whom we had difficult relationships. Mm. You know, we have this odd default in our country where where we just default to the notion that someone that we don't agree with is crazy. Oh, Saddam Hussein? Oh, he's crazy. (laughs) No, he's not crazy. He's actually quite sane. He runs his country like a mob boss runs his family, but it was incumbent on us at the CIA to understand that, to understand what was going through his mind when he was making these decisions. And then how do we get what we want based on what we think his decision-making process is going to be? So yeah, Post, Post was all about psychology and leadership.
1: When you when you get to the CIA, did you, were you instituted into Middle East uh, religious? Yeah,
0: my bachelor's degree was in Middle Eastern studies, mm-hmm. and um, I ended up getting hired into the office that Dr. Post had created at the CIA, the Office of Leadership Analysis. Okay. So there there were several components in in leadership analysis. One of them was the Political Psychology Division, which he had also founded, whose job it was just to do long distance psychological profiles on foreign leaders so it was a, a perfect fit for me uh, with my middle east background and, uh, and what year was that by the way uh
1: 1989.
0: 1989
1: uh, because in 1996 uh david cohen actually helped to create the Bin laden issue station which was codenamed dalek station after michael shoyer's son uh, which shoyer was the chief of station and one of your one of the um co-employees who was the initial hires at uh, uh, Alex Station? Was one of the, um, uh, who was hired at the same time as you, was Alfreda Ann Bukowski. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your overall assessment prior to Bukowski becoming situated at Alex Station?
0: I spent the first seven and a half years in the Directorate of Intelligence first in the Office of Leadership Analysis and then in the Office of Near Eastern and South Asian Analysis. Hmm. Went overseas. I went into Arabic training for a year and then I went overseas to the Middle East for two years. Came back uh, uh, working in Nisa again on Iraq and then I got bored, to tell you the truth. It's just Iraq, 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 Iraq. It was clear to me that the Clinton administration was just going to maintain the status quo. And I thought, you know, I I could be here for another 20 years working on Iraq and writing the same things. So I decided to do something different, and I switched to um, counterterrorism operations. Very unusual move. But as it turned out, at the time, I was the only person in the entire CIA who was fluent in both Arabic and Greek. And so I went through all of the operational training, uh, mid-career, and then uh, went to Athens as the CTC representative. At the same time, Alfreda uh, began working in, in Alex Station. So when I got back from Athens, it was the summer of 2000. Let me think. I went back to CTC and I headed a group that did training uh, for Middle Eastern uh, intelligence services uh, to do counterterrorism operations. Uh, 9-11 hit. I went to Pakistan to head counterterrorism operations there. And then when I went back, they reassigned me uh, to Alex Station and I was the chief of counterintelligence there. Uh, looking for moles and probes and double agents and stuff like that, and then so, and then I went up to the uh, seventh floor. Right,
1: well, I'm glad you mentioned this because I, I didn't know where to put it into questioning and whatnot. Was there? There wasn't many Arab linguist speakers at CIA. Was it sixteen? Sixteen.
0: Mm-hmm. Out of how many? Uh, the the actual number of employees is classified, but it is it, it's uh, well into five digits
1: into five, wow 16 out of 5 digits. all right that's a problem and um that uh-huh. was some, that was something yeah. the fbi later on actually complained about john o'neill the late john o'neill yeah. head of the counterterrorism in new york basically complained that ali sufam was the only arabic speaker and that they didn't spend enough funding into getting arab linguists Yeah the
0: the fbi and the cia had the same problem mm-hmm. uh with this lack of arabic speakers and in fact it was it was actually worse in the in the fbi because they treat linguists in the FBI as second class citizens. So you can rise up as an FBI agent, you know up to GS15 and then you go into the senior executive service. But if you're a translator, most everybody's going to be stuck at the GS12 level. and then if you go into supervisory position, you get get up to 14. Well, here's Ali Sufan who's who's interrogating, the the most important high value target that we had captured Mm -hmm. up to that point. And this guy's a GS-12 nobody who will never get the respect that an agent will get, even though the agent doesn't speak a single word of Arabic and is unable to participate in these interrogations. That's why Ali left the the FBI and opened his own firm. Mm -hmm. And he's been wildly successful.
1: Yes, he has. Um, and I, I really, I think, it, uh, I think it defies belief, John, to think that during that time when bin Laden and al-Qaeda was getting the attention from the CIA and the FBI, that they wouldn't have hired more Arab linguist speakers. What, why do you think that was?
0: That's a good question, and it's a difficult one to answer. Mm. Pre-9-11, they used to say that You know, the ones that really are fluent, fluent, like level five educated, fluent in Arabic um, are Arabs. They're naturalized citizens. Mm. And can we trust a naturalized citizen from Syria or Iraq or Egypt Mm. or a Palestinian? Like, can they really get, get cleared six levels above top secret? And, and have an SITK Gamma clearance. So they tended to keep people like that at arm's length. I'll give you an example. Uh, when, I, when I went away to Arabic training uh, for that year, um, three CIA uh, employees were my teachers. Uh, one was born in Lebanon, a, a woman, and then there was a man and a woman who were born in Egypt. And they were you know, full-time CIA employees but I had a blue badge saying showing that I was cleared to the SITK gamma level. They had yellow badges, which showed that they were cleared to the secret level. Well, why? We're all working for the CIA. We all go through the same background investigations. We all go through the same polygraph exams. Why am I cleared at seven or eight levels higher than they're cleared? And it was because they were not born in the United States. That changed after 9-11, um, but, but they, they did it wrong after 9-11. After 9-11, they went out and sought people like that. Uh, but then they ended up hiring like an army, for example, of Lebanese Catholics. Well, Lebanese Catholics hate Muslims. Mm. And so their analysis was often skewed. It was unreliable. It's like, well, how do, you, how do you come to this analytic conclusion? Well, you come to this analytic conclusion because you hate Muslims, right. right? Or we hired a whole bunch of Iraqi Christians from up north. Well, Iraqi Christians are going to be just as biased. Mm-hmm. We hire Coptic Egyptians who are also Christians. So they just went about it in this weird way. and then, And then you send these Christians out to secret sites to interrogate Al Qaeda and they're, they're as cruel as Mitchell and Jessen were. Mm. So it, it was a problem. It, it, they they realized that they had made a mistake of not hiring Arabic speakers all these years. And then they they doubled down on the mistake by hiring the wrong kinds of Arabic speakers after
1: 9-11. You, you actually became a counter-terrorism operations officer and worked in Athens, Greece on, uh euro communist terrorism yes and then in, and then in 2000 you returned to cia headquarters but by june of 2001 the cia knew something big was about to happen yeah yet in chapter nine of your book you had not focused on al-qaeda prior to this no um however there seemed to be some interagency infighting between the fbi and the cia at the oh. station regarding information concerning khalid
0: al badar and al mm-hmm. what are your thoughts surrounding that Oh, this, these fights between the CIA and the FBI were epic.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, the the problem between the two organizations goes back to the creation of the CIA in 1947. Um, This was a close vote in in Congress Mm -hmm. to this. I'm talking about the National Security Act of of 1947, which created the National Security Council and the CIA. Uh, And the reason why it was a close vote is because J. Edgar Hoover the longtime director of the FBI, long time, 48 and a half years long director of the FBI. Um, he didn't want to see the creation of an intelligence service that focused on foreign intelligence. And so President Truman told Hoover that the CIA would be a division of the FBI. And so Hoover lifted his objection. And it was enough to flip a couple of votes in Congress that the bill passed and it was only after it passed that Hoover realized he had been tricked and that the CIA was going to be an independent agency. It was not gonna be a division of the FBI. And so Hoover ordered his people not to cooperate with this new organization. And, uh, you know, the FBI always thought that they were better than the CIA. And then the CIA thought they were better than the FBI because the CIA's budget was bigger and the CIA didn't have to answer to Congress. And, and, I mean, things just just remained bad between them through the, the 50s, through the 60s and the Vietnam War, even though they did cooperate on some things, through the 70s. I mean, you know, we got to the point where where the CIA was looking for a couple of hijackers that we wanted, uh, w- would-be hijackers that we wanted to recruit, not having the idea, uh, not having the, the understanding that they were already in the country mm-hmm. and the FBI was surveilling them. Well, the FBI wasn't passing the information onto the CIA. The CIA never passed its information onto the FBI. The CIA knew that they were going to hijack planes, but didn't know where they were. Mm-hmm. The FBI knew where they were but didn't know that they were going to hijack planes. And so it was because of this bureaucratic infighting that we even had a 9/11. Yeah, when I interviewed Anthony Schaefer, it was
1: he said something similar to what you said then and he said he naively thought that everybody would be on the same page. Right. When so did this, I. Right. So did and so did yourself. Oh yeah. Right.
0: And so when, right because because we're all one team, right? Right, exactly. I mean, mm-hmm. Our our job was to protect the country. It wasn't to fight with each other to see who gets credit for protecting the country, it was to protect the country, Mm -hmm. and then you know we've got 2000 Americans dead in one day, because we couldn't do our jobs.
1: What was it basically just because of the information wall,
0: or was there something more in your estimation. Uh, yeah, there was something more. Um, this is something that George Tenet and Dick Clark, Dick. Dick was the uh, the senior advisor to the president for mm-hmm. counterterrorism at the uh, at the NSC. They used to call him the counterterrorism czar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dick and and George were George's words, shouting from the rooftops that something was was going to happen, something terrible. Um, they were going to the White House all the time, talking to. Cheney and Condi Rice and you know everybody who would listen and Cheney was the worst of them all in that he was more interested in China uh, and the threat from China mm-hmm. than than anything else What a couple of uh, this handful of illiterate uh, Arabs is a threat to us come on they have no money they have no weapons They're in Afghanistan. They can't get here. What threat could they pose to us? And George kept saying it's not that simple. Right. This is a serious threat to us. And Cheney just wouldn't hear it.
1: When you when you were with the Alex station at the time, you actually noticed the the sheer division between the FBI and the CIA. Was this basically just the bureaucrats or was it right down to the case officers themselves?
0: straight down to the case officers. We, we were ordered not to cooperate with one another. And it's like nobody even needed to issue the order. We weren't gonna cooperate with one another anyway.
1: Right, and, and, and also too, you also had the NSA to deal with because at the end of the time, the NSA actually was monitoring a house in Yemen, which is owned by Ahmed al Hadda. And meanwhile, right. they're collecting signals intelligence. The CIA doesn't do signals intelligence, they do, but the, the NSA is the primary agency for that. Yeah, they weren't they weren't sharing information with you guys either. So I mean, it's funny
0: at NSA. I got to be careful what I say here, but you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, NSA they'll they'll intercept something, and it'll be so sensitive, so highly classified Mm. that they don't tell anybody. Well, then why bother to intercept it if you're not going to tell anybody? Right, right. right. You got to tell us. You got to tell the FBI and you got to tell the NSC. You can't just you know, show each other at NSA, look at this incredible piece of intelligence. It's so, it's so crazy. We can't share it with anybody. That doesn't help anyone. If you don't share it, you don't disseminate it. I, I used to get calls from NSA every once in a while. It was crazy. We were all supposed to cooperate, right? We're all working together. So I go to over to NSA and spend a day. How you doing? We have lunch. Then they would come over to CIA and we'd take them to the gift store and we'd have lunch and briefings, whatever. Cause we're all supposed to be on the same team. And then they would, they would call, I'll never forget this. My, my green phone rings and I answer and it's NSA. I was like, oh, hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? And I said, yeah, I'm good. What's going on? We've got a really hot piece of intelligence. I said, okay. About what? Well, I, I can't tell you. I'm just, I'm just calling to tell you that this is something that you're going to want to find out about. And it's, it's, really, uh, it's really hot. It's really sensitive. I said, well, how the heck am I supposed to know then what it is if you won't tell me? Well, we're going we're gonna to send a hard copy by courier and um, they're going to put it in a safe in the director's office. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? So what we had to do, they would send a copy to the director's office and a copy to the operations center. So I'd have to go up to the operations center and say, I'm told that there's an intercept in and then I have to see it. They're like, yes, you have to sign the log book. I have to sign it. I sign my name and the, the date and the time and the title of the report. And then I'm not allowed to touch it or to take notes on it. So you have to stand there. Like I would always stand like this. Some people would stand like that and you read it and then you're like, okay, thank you. But you can't touch it. You can't copy it. You can't take notes on it. And because you can't take notes on it, you can't put it in the president's daily brief. Right. Right, because then the the PDB editor is gonna say, well, where's the original copy? We can't just tell the president, here's this information, just take my word for it. Right, right, right. You got to attach the original, Wait, well, the original copy is, you know, hands off, eyes only. Well, that's not, that's no way to run an intelligence uh, community. If you're cleared, you're cleared. So. So would,
1: the, would, would that come from the director Hayden himself?
0: Oh, yeah. 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 Hayden was trouble from the get go.
1: Sure. You know, it's the one agency I've I've concentrated on in my studies for 9-11 because the NSA had run two wiretaps. One was on Bin Laden's satellite phone and the other was the house in Yemen. And I said, you know, if they had any information, it would be them. They would. And according to Scheuer later on, he would later say the NSA was the goldmine for all intelligence yeah. regarding that. And I, okay, I said
0: CIA had zero sources, zero, literally nothing.
1: Yeah, you know, They're just going by on the ground. But I, as for signal intelligence, I mean, they heard everything. And according to the former senior executive, Thomas Drake, he would later on say that the, the NSA had so much metadata regarding al-Qaeda and bin Laden that if they shared it yeah. with other intelligence, they, they could have stopped 9-11 themselves, just, just themselves. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, I can only imagine what was being said on those lines by these al-Qaeda operatives. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it leads me to believe that, you know, all this information is basically classified. I mean, I don't and even know. Yeah, for sure. I,
0: and, you know, I, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but um, on 9-11 or 9-12, um, Orrin Hatch, the Republican senator from, mm. uh, from Utah, was giving an interview on CNN, and he mentioned the fact that NSA was on bin Laden's cell phone, and then bin Laden never used a phone ever again.
1: He stopped in 98, 1998. Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah 1998. Yeah. And then Washington Post broke a story. And then later on, they, they said that was the reason why. But the reason why he, he just dislodged the phone was that because um, you had the East Africa bombings and the trial yeah. came out and Mohammed daud Daou- al-Awali Daou- Daou- actually yeah. gave the number to the Yemen hub in that trial. And it was public. And I said, you know, that's, that's astounding. That the yemen hub number was named in the trial and they still use that number oh my god And i can only imagine you know but bin laden ditched the phone in 1998 but that didn't stop him from other al-qaeda operatives using other satellite phones so i like i said i can only imagine what the nsa had collected up to but it's only led to the imagination yeah because
0: we really don't know I it's got to be astounding but we don't know you're right,
1: right exactly no. so listen after the september 11th attacks you were actually named chief of the counter-terrorist operations in Pakistan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, of course, uh, you know the biggest story at the time was March 28, 2002, Yeah. Out of Faisalbad, Pakistan. And you yeah. were behind the raid to capture the biggest name in al-Qaeda time, Abu Zubaydah.
0: It, that uh, the, was arguably the most important day of my life. Was it really?
1: Yeah.
0: It, it certainly changed the, the course of the rest of my life. Yeah. Tell us about it yeah it's uh it's a very very long story so i'll give you the very short version um we uh we had intelligence that that abu zubaydah was somewhere in pakistan um we tracked him to both faisalabad and lahore he kept going back and forth back and forth there's a there's a turnpike a toll road that connects the two cities but, you know, there are 12 million people in Lahore, and there are 7 million people in Faisalabad, and it's really tough to, sure. to narrow it down. So we were able to narrow it down to his location down to 14 possible sites, which later became 13 possible sites. We brought a big team in, half FBI, half CIA, and we hit all 13 sites simultaneously. And, um, and we're fortunate enough to, to get him in one. It was a fierce firefight during, you know, it it actually wasn't. I I told everybody before the raid began, before we kicked off, we we actually went our separate ways at Mm. at 10 p.m. the night before. And I said, listen, there's only one rule here. Our orders are to take him alive. He's got to be taken alive. Mm. And as soon as the operation started, this one Pakistani policeman just opened fire. And and he killed one guy who was with Abu Zubaydah. He was a bomb maker. He almost killed Abu Zubaydah by shooting him in the thigh, the groin, and the stomach mm. with an AK-47. And then he shot Abu Zubaydah's uh, bodyguard. Now, they were unarmed. There was no reason to shoot them like that. But the guy got carried away. Mm. Yeah.
1: He suffered some injuries. Now, um, that was that was at the time that was huge because and hmm. it's incidentally, incidentally enough also I wanted to get your thoughts on this you know it's funny because in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and 911 a lot of the co-conspirators behind these two terrorist attacks were captured in Pakistan yes Ram, Ramzi Yusuf, Ramzi bin al shib Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Abu Zubaydah that's right what was the was the ISI uh, could they be trusted in these operations and. <laughs>
0: Um, the, the short answer is yes. The long answer is maybe, Mm -hmm. um, yes. In that there, there really were two ISIs. There was counterterrorism and then there was everything else, which really means Kashmir and India. Mm -hmm. So the counterterrorism guys to a man were all trained in England, all of them went to sandhurst so these guys were pros down the line i i literally trusted them with my life literally is that right i did and they were heroes but you go to isi headquarters and you see lots of guys with really long bushy beards Hmm. These are the guys that were, you know, that created the Taliban, that were funneling weapons to the Kashmiris mm-hmm. and to the Pakistani terrorist groups, the Jashi Muhammad, right. the Ansada Allah. I mean, there were countless terrorist groups. Uh, you'd get the stink eye from them. They don't respond to Salamu Alaikum. So there were two ISIs. The ones that I worked with were amazing. The other ones, I would fear for my safety around them.
1: Sure. Another a notable terrorist who actually had, who was a British citizen is Omar uh, Ahmed Omar Saeed Sheikh.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's um,
1: right. So, all right, Abu Zubaydah is captured. Uh, did you ever get to talk with Abu Zubaydah? What was he like as a person?
0: I spent 56 consecutive hours with Abu Zubaydah at his bedside. And uh, my orders came from George Tenet directly Mm. 24 seven CIA eyes on, he said, do not leave his bedside. Mm. And it's the longest I was ever awake in my life Um, to the point where, you know, it made me sick, nauseous to be up that that long. And I was afraid that he was going to try to escape. So I tore up a sheet and I tied him to the bed by his wrists and his ankles so he couldn't move. But he was so severely wounded, he wasn't going anywhere. They were pumping, they had an actual pump to pump blood into him. And as quickly as they could pump the blood in, it was just leaking out. And there was this enormous pool of blood under the bed. He was soaked, the sheets are soaked. We had blood all over us. I mean, it was it was like a scene out of a horror movie. It really was. So he was in a coma the first 24 hours. And then finally he woke up and, um, and he asked me to kill him. It was the first, first thing that he said when he came out of the coma. Um, first, he was delirious and he asked me for a glass of red wine. And then when he got his bearings, um, he, he asked me to kill him. He asked me to smother him with a pillow. And I said, no, I said, nobody's gonna kill you. Abu was you know, at first, I, 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 when he first motioned for me to come like this next to the bed, I moved his oxygen mask and I said to him, ismek, what is your name? And he shook his head. So I said it again, ismek," And he said to me, in English, I will not speak to you in God's language. And I said, that's okay, Abuzabeta, we know who you are. And then he started crying and he said, please kill me, brother, kill me, take the pillow and kill me. And I said, nobody's going to kill you. We've been looking for you for a long time. I said, uh, I said you're going to uh, get the best medical care that the American government can provide. So, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time together. He, he cried constantly. He said he would never know the touch of a woman. He would never know the joy of fatherhood. And I said, listen, you're not the victim here. There were 50,000 people in those towers. What did you think we were going to do? Did you think we wouldn't try to hunt you down and, and, and hunt bin Laden? And I said, come on, listen, I told him, I'm going to give you some advice. I'm the nicest guy that you're going to meet in this experience. I told him, my colleagues, they're not nice like I am. So if there's one thing you do, it's that you have to cooperate. And he said, you seem like a nice man, but you're the enemy and I'll never cooperate. I said, well, suit yourself. I said, <laughs> I told him, your life is over. What remains of it can be easy or it can be terrible. Mm. It's up to you. He didn't care.
1: Sure, because afterwards he became, it became very terrible.
0: Very terrible. Him. We talked about, you know, we, we captured his, his diary. Uh, When we raided the house and um, it was more, it it was more than a diary. It was, he, he would write poetry in it. Mm. He would draw doodles and, and sketches. He would, he would write these letters to himself as a young man. Like he's writing to the 14 year old. uh, Telling him not to make the mistakes that he ended up making. Mm -hmm. Um, He was extraordinarily bright. Uh, very creative. We talked about the differences between Christianity and Islam. We talked about our families and yeah, it was, it was a surreal experience.
1: Okay. You, you actually end up resigning from the CIA in 2004 and um, you became a terrorism consultant for ABC news in uh, 2008. Mm -hmm. And you actually stayed pretty active outside from the CIA. And you actually gave an interview to Brian Ross in 2007, describing the capture of Abu Zubaydah. And during this interview, you mentioned that a former CIA employee said to you that Zubaydah had been waterboarded. Mm
0: -hmm. Now,
1: we do know that the CIA waterboarded him 83 times. Mm -hmm. Um, What happened after this interview?
0: Yeah, the, the whole weight of the U.S. government fell on my head. Uh, Is the easiest way of saying what happened, Um, I I made I said three things I said that the CIA was torturing its prisoners, I said that torture was official US government policy, and I said that the policy had been personally approved by the President. Mm -hmm. So within 24 hours the FBI began investigating me for leaking classified information, they investigated me from December of 2007 to December of 2008. And in December of 2008, they sent my attorney a declination letter where they were declining to prosecute me. They said that um, I had not revealed classified information. So three weeks later, Barack Obama was inaugurated as president and he named John Brennan, the deputy national security advisor for counterterrorism. John and I went back to my hiring date at the CIA. We never liked each other. And uh, Brennan was one of the he was one of the creators of the torture program. He was the number four at the CIA. He was the deputy executive director. And so he, he asked the justice department to secretly reopen the case against me. I had no idea that for the next three years, my phones were tapped, my emails were being intercepted, um, groups of FBI agents were surveilling me. And then in January of uh, 2012, um, I was arrested and charged with five felonies, including three counts of espionage, coming from that ABC News interview and mm-hmm. a subsequent interview I did with the New York Times. Mm-hmm. You got the similar treatment to um, your counterparts
1: of the NSA, Thomas Drake, yes, um, Kirk J. Weeby, and yes. Ed Loomis, and where, Ed and Bill Binney, and Bill Binney. That's right. Mm-hmm. These guys and they basically just you know didn't say anything that was classified. It just like you. You didn't share any classified information, but yet the agencies that they, which incidentally enough, it was the same agencies that brought down the hammer of the justice upon you. Um, I can only imagine what you were thinking at the time, because there was nothing that you said that was revealing no. what we what we what we
0: everybody knew everybody right exactly everybody already knew you know human rights watch had already issued a report saying the cia was was torturing its prisoners amnesty international said cia is torturing its prisoners um the international committee of the red cross said cia is torturing its prisoners so then john kiriakou goes on tv and says the cia is torturing its prisoners and i get 3 espionage charges
1: uh, yeah, I, I, when I read your case a while, while back, I remember when you actually mentioned that even if you th- reported torture, it would
0: actually be fruitless because the Congressional Intelligence Committees were all, already aware. of it. They were all in on it. They, you know, people ask me all the time, well, you shouldn't have gone to the media. You should have gone through your chain of command. My chain of command created the torture program. Right. Oh, you should have gone to the oversight committees. The oversight committees secretly approved and then financed the torture program. So no, I couldn't go through the chain of command and I couldn't go to the Congressional Oversight Committees. They were in on it. Was this basically, now Thomas Drake says this, because
1: he went to the media and Bill Binney says the same thing. Is mm-hmm. it because that you weren't talking to the media? That's
0: the reason why? No, in fact, I, ha- I had never spoken to a journalist before in my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's off limits, right? It's out of bounds when you're at the CIA. But Brian Ross had called me and said that he had a source who said that I had tortured Abu Zubaydah. And I said, that was absolutely untrue. I was the only person who was kind to Abu Zubaydah. Mm. And he said, well, you're welcome to come on the show and defend yourself. Well, I didn't know that that was an old reporter's trick. And it turned out that he did have a source at the White House who said that I had tortured Abu Zubaydah. And I said to my wife, I figured it out that it was at the White House. And I said, Brian Ross's sources at the White House And they're going to try to pin this on me. I said, I've got to defend myself. And so I decided I was just going to tell the truth. That whatever he asked me, I'm just going to tell the truth. I'd like to get your thoughts
1: on something that has been bothering me for a little bit. Is that the CIA had actually tortured Ramzi bin al-Shif, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and the Guantanamo Five, Mm -hmm. who are connected to the 9-11 attacks. Mm -hmm. This seemed to be a huge, huge mistake, because even if they even even by telling the truth, the public and the court system have to now take into account that they could be manufacturing lies or it could be saying something because we'll never know the actual
0: truth. You are correct. You're correct. And I, I would I would add to that even more importantly, let's assume that they did tell the truth. Right which they didn't torture never gets the truth it gets whatever they think you want to hear just to get you to stop torturing them but let's say that they did give us something that was actionable we can't use it in court and they can never be prosecuted so we've demeaned ourselves as a country we're supposed to be this shining beacon of hope for law and order and human rights and civil rights and civil liberties and it's all nonsense Because we did exactly what we make other countries promise they won't do, and we ruined whatever cases we might have had against them. And And You know, last week when Biden was in uh, Saudi Arabia, hmm. and he told the crown prince, you know, hey, you you killed uh, Jamal Khashoggi, and uh, this is a human rights violation, and it's a violation of international law, and blah, 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 and... And Mohammed bin Salman said, well, let's talk about Abu Ghraib, let's talk about Guantanamo, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he's right. Mm-hmm. So we, we only hurt ourselves with this cockamamie program.
1: Now, I don't, I, I don't, I, I'd be hard-pressed uh, to assume that you know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Wouldn't the CIA have already known that by torture they're going to create this scenario in the first place?
0: Sure, you- but they didn't care. You know, there are a couple of elements at play here. One is the, the need for revenge. 9 11 was the greatest intelligence failure in American mm-hmm. history, and it was preventable. And so there was this desire for revenge to show the American people we're going to hit them back. 10 times harder than they hit us, right? Number one. Secondly, it comes back to that fundamental difference between the CIA and the FBI, where the FBI is constantly trying to build a criminal case and the CIA doesn't care about any criminal case. They just want to take the bad guy off the street. And if that means that you disappear him or you send him to Cairo or Damascus or somewhere else and they disappear him, well, You know, that's life in the fast lane.
1: When I interviewed Ken Williams of the FBI in Phoenix, I once asked him, I said, do you think there'll ever be a trial? And he said, no,
0: no, definitely. And
1: I'll ask you that question.
0: Absolutely not. There will never be a trial. What do you think would happen from here on? Well, they would have to. They would have to close whatever courtroom uh, this thing would take place in because literally everything out of everybody's mouth, the CIA is going to jump up and down and say is classified. But more, uh, more importantly, I think uh, whatever the defendants would have to say would, would expose the CIA to, uh, to its own criminal charges. Listen, it's a felony to class, to classify something for the purpose of keeping it from the public, right? So if you are uh, committing a criminal act like torture, which is against US law, against international law, against the international uh, convention against torture and, and inhumane punishment or inhumane treatment, it is illegal to classify that. And the whole thing is classified, the whole program. So it's, this is far more complicated than just, did they do it or did they not do it? Right, sure. The, that's why I don't think there will ever be a trial. You know, Carol Rosenberg at the New York Times. Rose,
1: yes. Mm-hmm. What did I say? No, Carol Rosenberg
0: at the New York yeah. Times. Yeah, she, she's the only person who really writes on this issue. There's a possibility that um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Abu Zubaydah, Ramzi bin Ashib, and Abdurrahim Aneshiri, uh might take guilty pleas.
1: Yes, I've heard this before. Yes. Right? And,
0: and it's the craziest thing in that all they're asking is to not be sent to Florence, Colorado. Mm-hmm. They want to spend the rest of their lives at Guantanamo because it's tropical. Right? You got the ocean right over here. The weather's usually decent. It's hot. But Florence, Colorado, in a six by 10 foot concrete cell where you never see the sun again for the rest of your life, they just can't bear the thought. No. So she's the only one reporting on it that these talks are underway, that we we might end up with a handful of guilty pleas. But again, coming back to your original question. There's never, ever going to be a trial for any of these guys.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And when I interviewed Ken Williams again, I, he actually said that the deal actually is that they're going to take the death penalty off the table, yes. but they have to plead guilty to 9-11 altogether.
0: And the now, truth is we could never sentence them to death anyway. You know? Oh, is that right? Is that right? right? Oh, yeah. They haven't been tried. No, no court has, has levied a death penalty against them. Right. Is it... <laughs> I mean, to to me, it's it's a,
1: such a paradox because they they their their evidence can't be used against them, and I right. think the government knows that unless they're willing to declassify classified information, which I think, like with you, I agree with you, they're not going to do that. But they would they would, that's just the reason why the trial hasn't started in twenty somewhat years. So initially, oh, right. now I heard, uh, 2024. Um, well, yeah. I think what they're hoping is that they just die in prison. And- yeah. That.
0: Well, well, you remember seeing in the in the Senate torture report uh, what little of it we were able to see, that the plan for Abu Zubaydah, and we would have to assume that this was the plan for the others too, was uh, they just wait until he dies, and then they cremate him and throw his ashes in the ocean.
1: When, you know, incidentally enough, you bring this up with Abu Zubaydah. I read um, in the Senate torture report as well, which I'm posting on Twitter from time to time, excerpts of it. Um That when the CIA got hold of his baby, they actually put him in a coffin like prison for twenty four hours they put beetles and bugs in there or whatnot and uh put it was, uh,
0: it was longer than twenty four hours was it was it longer? yeah, they kept him in there for two weeks. they would just open the coffin up long enough to change his diaper and throw some food in always oh, that two weeks okay
1: mm-hmm. i i I mistakenly thought it was twenty four hours, and I heard that they they took out the uh, concrete of his cell and put it wood for walls so they could wall him and whatnot. And I yes. said what these these some of these tortured devices even didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, some just some of the uh, excerpts are like, you know, Bruce Jesson and, and Ivins um, basically Defended themselves saying that we were trying to protect the country for, yeah. by getting information from them. Yeah, they
0: keep repeating that. Yeah. hoping that yeah. Maybe someday they'll convince themselves.
1: Right. I think that's exactly.
0: You know, let me interrupt way. you for one second. Yeah, sure. You talk about Mitchell and Jessen. You talk about George Tenet and Steve Kappas and and Jose Rodriguez and Gina Haspel and all these people. The reason they keep, and, and John Brennan, the reason they keep repeating this lie over and over and over again, that this was the right thing to do is the patriotic thing to do is because they know that this is their legacy. The other 30 years of their career doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And when they die and their obituaries are written, this is what it's going to say that they were responsible for torturing other human beings, mm-hmm. in some cases, to death. And so they're trying, in whatever time they have left on this planet, to convince the American people that this was the right thing to do. And it wasn't. You, After you get sent to prison,
1: you had a lot of people speaking up for you. Oh, and yeah. one of them was Bruce Rydell, who I'm yeah. very familiar with. And he tried to commute your sentence before um, Barack Obama. Yes. Um, You end up being released on February 3rd, 2015. And, you know, incredulity abound. You even remarked immediately that you would end up doing this all over again to expose the crimes of torture. And that this was never about leaking classified information. You still stand by that
0: statement? 100%. 100%. In fact, you know, I gave an interview to the BBC back then, too. Um, it's, it's their version of 60 Minutes. It's, it's, kind, of, um, it's kind of a famous show because the, uh, the presenter attacks. It's constantly attacking, right? And he, he finally said, um, well, you don't seem to be too upset by any of this. And I said, well, you know, it's water under the bridge. It, it doesn't help me in any way to, to, uh, to focus on the events of the past. And I said, you know, if Martin Luther King can forgive the people who wronged him and Nelson Mandela can can forgive the people who sent him to solitary confinement for 20 plus years, I can certainly forgive people who wronged me and sent me away for only 23 short months. And he said, I don't believe that for a second. And I said, but it's the truth. And he asked me if I had any regrets and without missing a single second, I said, absolutely not. And I said, listen, I know I'm going to take a lot of heat for saying this, but I have zero remorse for what I did. This was the right thing to do. I said, I'm a Patriot. I'm a Patriot. And I hate to think that on the day that I put my right hand up in the air and I swore an oath to protect and uphold the constitution of the United States against all enemies, Foreign and domestic that I was the only person in the room that day who actually meant it, so I said no, I would definitely do it again what are you hoping now
1: John um, you wrote a you wrote a, you know a couple of books been author behind a couple of books here. what do you want to do from this point forward for uh, the future
0: in my life you mean yeah I'm doing a lot of I'm doing a lot of different things right now. You know, it's funny. I, I, I still feel like I'm 20 years old, but I'm not. I'm, I'm going to be 58 in a couple of weeks. And um, for the first time in a very long time, I'm happy and I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I've got a radio show every day here in Washington from 12 to 2, terrestrial radio. I've got three columns. I write for consortium news the sheer post at usc and um, covert action magazine I just sent in the manuscript for my eighth book and I'm 61 pages into my ninth book now uh, so I enjoy writing books and um, in the next couple of months I'm going to start doing some some lobbying I've got a master's degree in legislative affairs that I never really used outside the senate foreign relations committee so um You know, in in an experience like this, you really get to see who your real friends are. Sure. And who they're not. And in some cases, you might even be married to them. And uh, I think I finally figured it out after 58 years. Last
1: question for you, I just wanna get your opinion. Um, The latest conflict in Ukraine Actually, uh, we spent billions of dollars in military aid. Are we making a similar mistake as what we saw in 1979
0: Afghanistan? Um, I think so. Yes. You know, I. um, I've taken kind of an unpopular position on this war. uh, Unpopular with both sides. Because I'm opposed to the Russian invasion. And I'm also opposed to this unlimited aid to uh, to Ukraine. Uh, I would oppose I would oppose the war no matter who the parties were. If the United States had invaded Ukraine, I would oppose that. Uh, let the diplomats do their jobs. Uh, at the same time, you know we've got bridges falling into the rivers below them. We've got highways that are international embarrassments. Uh, we've got third rate schools and second rate hospitals, you travel and you see the airports in some of these other countries, We're, we should be embarrassed by our airports. We should be embarrassed by the condition of our schools, but we seem to have unlimited funds for weapons and weapon mm-hmm. systems and aid to Ukraine. Let's spend the money here in the United States. We have a larger defense budget than the next eight largest countries combined do we really need that? I don't think so.
1: Just to follow up on that too. Um, it seems that uh, we're getting pressured from our foreign lobby institutes of the Gulf and Israel to engage yes. a war with Iran. Yes. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to speak as unbiased as I can, report as honestly as I can regarding this very tumultuous situation. What would be your opinion about uh, a potential conflict with Iran?
0: Is that even possible um, at this point? Yeah. Oh, it's it's definitely possible. And I'll tell you, we came very close to attacking Iran in the final weeks of the George W. Bush administration. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has dedicated his life Mm -hmm. to dragging the United States into a war with Iran. Bush thought the better of it. And then Obama wasn't even vaguely interested in attacking Iran. Uh, Now I fear that Joe Biden is doing the Israelis bidding again. There were two reasons to go to Saudi Arabia. One obviously was to ask them to increase oil production, but the other was to ask them to participate in this regional defense idea that the Israelis have come up with. So, so far it's Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Morocco, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, The Israelis asked us if we would try to draw in the Saudis and the Iraqis. Why? What good does this do for the United States? We have to stop doing the Israelis bidding, right? Again, let the diplomats do their job. We should have jumped back into the JCPOA and we should have told the Israelis, we will not fight the Iranians for you. There's no reason to do it. We get nothing out of it as a country. And can you imagine what it would do to the global economy if we went to war with Iran? So we, we've got to stand up to the Israelis. Enough is enough.
1: John Kiriakou, former case officer, whistleblower against the program of torture and author of my, The Reluctant Spy, My Secret Life in the CIA's War and Terror. Thank you very much for coming on today.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.